0: Coming up. John Crace watches the Tories tie themselves in knots to avoid calling Lee Anderson the R word. A Ted Bundy survivor recalls the moment that changed her life and her determination not to let it define her. And the worst film ever made? How Sex Lives of the Potato Men Broke British Cinema.
2: So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call one eight hundred Club Med or your travel advisor.
1: Disturbing images of young girls have appeared in a small
3: town in Spain. Where have they come from? Could I just uh, ask for your name?
2: I'm not keen to share it, really.
3: Listen to Black Box, a new podcast series from The Guardian. Seven stories about AI and us. Coming soon.
0: Now, in the wake of Lee Anderson's claims that Islamists have control of London Mayor Sadiq Khan, even Rish has tied himself in knots trying to work out what Anderson should apologise for. Because Lee's not racist or Islamophobic, is he? By John Crace. Read by Dan Starkey.
3: How do you solve a problem like Lee? If you're Rishi Sunak, then the answer is with the greatest reluctance. And extremely carefully. Lee Anderson is a man to be treated with kid gloves. To be loved back into a state of grace. It would be a push to call Lee a national treasure but he is certainly the closest the Conservative Party has to a local hero. An MP far more popular among fellow Tories than Rishi or any of his cabinet colleagues. Viewers tune into his GB News programme to be drip-fed divine truths. For the unsayable to be made flesh, Lee is their beating heart. How this came about is more of a mystery. Lee has been on quite the journey. He started life as a Labour councillor, making prejudiced remarks about travellers, before he jumped ship to the Tories, a party that would be more indulgent to his racism, and to the fact that he campaigned on behalf of Jeremy Corbyn in the 2017 general election. Since then, Lee has made a career out of hypocrisy and stupidity. First, he lashed out at fellow MPs who took second jobs. MPs should be content to serve their constituents on their parliamentary salary, he insisted moments before signing a a £100,000-a-year deal to present his own show on GB News. He then turned out at the launch of the popular Conservatives as their voice on climate change. Burning coal was just fine, he told us, because coal came from trees and trees were green. Some people even applauded this nonsense. But Lee doesn't care if people think he's stupid or racist. In fact, the more the people call him out, the more he likes it. It makes him feel good feeds his dysfunctionality, his overwhelming narcissism. More to the point, he binds all those supporters that the Tories like to pretend don't exist, but on whom they increasingly rely. So much so that the Conservative Party chose to bung him an extra £10,000 a year, the only Brexit bonus anyone is likely to see. And it was all going so well, until Lee went openly racist on his home news channel last Friday night and declared that Sadiq Khan had been taken over by Islamists, and that London was now being run by terrorists. Take a trip on the Northern Line, and your train will be driven by a suicide bomber. Every bus was on its own personal jihad. Now, you could say that Lee was unlucky. That he happened to deliver his rant at a time when someone was actually watching. Who knows how many other hate crimes he has committed that have gone unremarked. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? but what had been heard could not now be unheard. And while there were plenty of Tories willing to attest that they had personally seen the London Mayor take part in the 7th of October terrorist attack, there were still a few who thought that maybe, just maybe, Anderson had gone too far this time. Then up stepped brave Rish, or not. The Prime Minister was notably silent for 24 hours hoping that Lee would retract his statement, say he had got it wrong this time, and that everyone could go back to being just a little bit racist this time. After all, racism light is the new acceptable face of conservatism. But no, still nothing. So Sunak was finally persuaded to withdraw the whip, with the clear understanding that Lee was still a figure of the divine, a human love pump, and was welcome back whenever he wanted. Rich! was no more coherent when he gave a series of interviews to local radio stations in Yorkshire on Monday morning. What Lee had said was wrong, he said, but it definitely wasn't racist or Islamophobic. Uh, run that past us again? Lee had done something wrong, but the wrong thing wasn't racist or Islamophobic. So what was wrong about it? That he was actually far too nice? Sunak couldn't explain, other than it was a category error. The Tory party had no problem with Islamophobia or racism, so therefore Lee couldn't have said anything wrong. Apart from the wrong thing, he had said. We were rapidly going round in ever-decreasing circles. Sunak's Tory party is having the same problem with Islamophobia as Jeremy Corbyn's Labour had with anti-Semitism. That provided the cue for almost everyone to go slightly mad. Paul Scully, a Tory junior minister who is normally considered one of the saner members of the government, gave an interview in which he insisted that words mattered. Lee should apologise, only for him then to say there were no-go areas in Birmingham, that terrorists were in control there too. It's a wonder any of us secular types get through the day without being beheaded. Meanwhile, Lee himself was loving it, thrilled to still be the centre of attention. So he gave a statement to GB News, which he insisted another presenter read out for him, that doubled down on his racism. Even as Lee didn't speak, Sadiq was in talks to turn the M25 into a mosque. Any motorist who wasn't radicalised would not be allowed into the centre of London. The Euless charge was funding Hamas. Not to be outdone, the always idiotic Jonathan Gullis accused the Speaker of also radicalising most of his Stoke constituents. Suella Braverman went further. The whole of the establishment were now terrorists. When she looked around the cabinet table, she couldn't be sure that one of her colleagues wasn't about to blow up the room. Then there was the brown noser, par excellence, Chris Philp. He too had counted hundreds of terrorists on his way to work. You could always spot a terrorist, he said. They were the ones who had nothing but contempt for the planning laws. The holy writ of the green belt. It's possible that the Philpster is actually more stupid than 30p Lee. At least Lee doesn't pretend to be anything but dim. Even Tom Tuganhat, who wouldn't look out of place in a Keir Starmer cabinet, couldn't bring himself to call out Lee. What he had said was wrong, but he couldn't squeeze out the word Islamophobia. Come the early evening news, Rish was at it again. The Tory party definitely, definitely didn't have a problem with Islamophobia. It was just a total coincidence that everywhere he looked, there were men with swords yelling Allahu Akbar. And that was just the leadership team of the Bank of England. That was Nothing to See
0: Here. Tories of their hero, 30 P. Lee, by John Crace, read by Dan Starkey. Next. Kathy Kleiner was brutally attacked by Ted Bundy in 1978. On the same evening, he murdered two other women. Here, she describes how she faced the trauma and physical injuries and plotted her own path to happiness, written by Anna Moore, read by Lydia Parker. This article contains references to violence and sexual assault, so please take care when listening.
2: When Kathy Kleiner was attacked by Ted Bundy, her life had just been opening out. A second-year student at Florida State University, 500 miles from home, she was living in a sorority house. She had her first boyfriend. She was taking all kinds of classes and picturing multiple possible futures. Weather reporter archaeologist, drama teacher, interior designer. It was wonderful, says Kleiner. I was away from Mama, who had me in a protective bubble. I was having fun, going to parties, working when I had to. I was getting freedom. On a cold Saturday night in January 1978, she was in bed early. She had been to a wedding that day and had a calculus exam on the Monday. I thought I should study a bit, or at least open a book. Kleiner and her roommate, Karen Chandler, switched off the light and fell asleep well before midnight. Then, in the early hours, I heard our bedroom door, she says. I tried to wake up a little bit. Bundy, the serial killer, rapist, necrophiliac, failed law student, loner, drifter, or as Kleiner sees it, sad little man, has been the subject of many books, films, documentaries, plays, even songs. You don't hear so much from the people whose lives he detonated. Bundy's killing spree, he murdered at least 30 women and girls between 1974 and 1978, coincided with the start of criminal profiling. It was the decade that the term serial killer was first used by law enforcement. His trial was the first in the U.S. to be nationally televised. All this gave him a spotlight that has only shone brighter in the decades since. In the 2019 thriller, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, he was played by heartthrob Zac Efron. In popular culture, he has mythological status a glamour and gloss never afforded to today's serial killers and sex offenders. Meanwhile, his victims have been largely forgotten, and the few who survived, women such as Kleiner, have quietly found their own way forward. On the night that he slipped into the Chi Omega sorority house where Kleiner lived, carrying a log that had been stacked outside for firewood, Bundy was on the run and on a rampage, Already the chief suspect in numerous murders across western states, he had been convicted of attempted kidnapping in Utah and charged with first-degree murder in Colorado, then escaped a small county jail and fled east to Tallahassee, Florida. The first bedroom he entered was next to Kleiner's and belonged to a student named Margaret Bowman. He bludgeoned, then strangled her, slunk out, and entered the room across the hall where a student named Lisa Levy was sleeping. Bundy beat and strangled her, too, then raped her, bit her. Those teeth marks later helped convict him and sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle. He still wasn't finished. The next door he tried was Kleiner's. He tripped over the little locker between our beds and made a lot of noise, says Kleiner. I remember squinting into the dark, not wearing my glasses, and seeing this black shadow standing above me, looking at me. The next thing I see, he raises his arm up over his head and slams something down on my face. It's weird because at first it just felt like a thud. It didn't hurt. That blow broke Kleiner's jaw in three places and ripped open her cheek. The force made her bite her tongue so badly that it was barely attached. At this point, my roommate stirred, and he went to her side of the bed, says Kleiner. He lifted his arm and slammed the wood down on her face. Kleiner was whimpering, trying and failing to shout. I'm holding my face, and it's wet and sticky, and all I'm doing is making gurgling sounds. Now the shadow returned to her, arms raised to land another blow. I'd curled into a little ball. As small as I could be, she says, I just knew I was going to die. That's when the whole room was flooded with light, illuminated by the headlights of a car pulling up outside to drop someone home. The curtains were never closed in Kleiner's bedroom because she and Chandler loved the sunlight. It spooked Bundy. Perhaps he feared the people in the car outside had seen him. It was enough to stop him. Bundy left the building heading straight to a basement apartment a few blocks away, where he attacked a dance major called Cheryl Thomas. Back in the sorority house, Chandler was able to stumble from her room and get help. From there, Kleiner remembers drifting in and out of consciousness as chaos ensued. Her sorority sisters called emergency services. Some looked into the blood-splattered bedroom and vomited. One, Kleiner can't be sure who, stayed with her. She sat on the drenched covers, wrapped her arms around Kleiner, and talked to her while they waited for help. It was a kind of tethering, reeling her back. Her compassion was unforgettable, she says. It felt like I was going to be taken care of. In hospital for a week, Kleiner had the first of many surgeries on her jaw. She's still having them now. Her teeth were wired shut, and this combined with her shredded tongue, meant she could barely speak. Kleiner only knew that she had been attacked. Her family judged that she was in no state to learn any more. From hospital, Kleiner went home to Miami. But before she left Tallahassee, police wanted her to return to her bedroom and see if anything was missing, whether her attacker had taken a souvenir. I couldn't tell if anything was missing— I couldn't even remember what had been there in the first place, she says. She saw yellow tape around the doors belonging to Bowman and Levy. Neither had survived, but her foggy brain barely registered it. We went into my room. There was fingerprint dust and so much blood. My headboard, my bed cover, my mattress, the walls, all stained brown. I just... Looked and looked. It was horrifying, but helpful. It gave me some clarity. So, this is what happened. I walked away from that bed knowing I'd been in it, as small as a ball could be, and I was standing now. I was going to walk out the door away from all this and go somewhere better. Kleiner never returned to university. At home with her parents and sister, her life shrunk. I have a Cuban mom, and like a lot of Cuban parents, her way was to sweep it under the rug. You don't talk about your problems or let people know your business. You certainly don't have therapy. The focus was on physical healing, and her parents did their best to shield Kleiner from what had happened. It was weeks before she saw it on the news. She devised her own kind of therapies. In the first few weeks, I felt like this darkness was going to cover me up and consume me, she says. I was scared to look behind me, because this terrible thing was right there, touching my shoulders. Kleiner began to imagine a tiny desert island in the distance. It had one palm tree and one little beach chair, and I wanted to get to that island every day. I'd take baby steps towards it. Each small pleasure helped. One day, I'd do my nails, or I'd sit outside with the sun on my face and look at the trees. Little goals to get me further away from the black, swirling mass. I looked forward to my mouth being unwired, then had my first solid meal. Scrambled eggs and ham. Then I went to the mall. I wasn't just pretending or faking being happy— I was going there in my mind, knowing what I wanted for me, my parents, and my sister, because they couldn't be happy unless I was happy. Exposure therapy also helped. I realized when I was out that I was uncomfortable around men I didn't know, she says. I'd notice them from a distance or feel that someone was too close. I didn't want to feel like that. In March, just three months after her attack... Kleiner took a job as cashier in a lumber yard. "'That's where I thought I could see the most men in the shortest amount of time,' says Kleiner. "'They never bothered me. They were just people.' "'It worked. I was another step closer to that island.' The life she had loved at FSU was over. Although she had called her sorority house, mumbling through her wired teeth, leaving messages to call her back, no one did.' Now Kleiner can see that those students were young and traumatized, too, and had been instructed not to exchange information in case they were accused of colluding in any future trial. At the time, though, it felt like a cutoff, a complete rejection. They're not really your sisters, her mom would remind her. You have a sister. Instead, it was decided that Kleiner would marry her boyfriend. He was the first guy I'd dated, After the attack, my parents and his parents thought I needed to be taken care of, she says. I let it go ahead because they were enjoying it. My mom craved normalcy, and I was enjoying it too. I got caught up in the invitations, picking the menu, tasting the cakes. It was fun. In a way, I needed that. That summer of 1978, she married. In six months... I'd totally turn my life into something else. Meanwhile, Bundy had been arrested. Soon after her honeymoon, Kleiner was called to Tallahassee to testify before a grand jury in pretrial proceedings, where it would be decided whether charges should advance. It was the first time that she had really seen him. Bundy was sitting at the end of a long conference table, and I sat at the other end, she says. By then, I knew his history, the case they were building. I wasn't scared. He was a non-thing. He's remembered as handsome, but he was just an average person. You'd pass him by. He was sitting there, impatient, arrogant, like a bored middle manager, like we were wasting his time. The following year, Bundy stood trial for the murders of Bowman and Levy, and the attempted murders of Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas. Kleiner gave evidence. I wore a bright red dress, and I walked in confidently, she says. I was asked what happened to me that night and about my injuries. I was asked if this was the man who allegedly attacked me, and I had to say, I don't know. Still, Bundy was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death. The fiction that has built around Bundy has been hard for Kleiner to stomach. He wasn't an evil genius or a brilliant legal mind, she says. His grades were, at best, mediocre. He took eight years to get his first degree, then failed at two law schools. He had never rented anything bigger than a single room in a boarding house. He didn't rely on good looks and charm to lure victims into danger— no one says Fred West charmed his victims into 25 Cromwell Street. Maybe some women were programmed to be kind and suppress their instincts when he approached on crutches or with an arm in a sling to ask for assistance. The majority, though, were bludgeoned from behind as they walked alone, or, like Kleiner, in their beds while they slept. At some point... It became really important to separate out the truth. And I had to do a lot of reading on psychology to know what he was, she says. And now I know. Her life filled out. She enjoyed her career as a hospital buyer. She had a son, Michael. Her marriage ended after six years because, she says, she married for the wrong reasons. Later, though, she married for the right reasons. She has been with Scott Rubin, a professor in neuroscience, for more than 35 years. Rubin's career meant living in various southern states, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana. They were in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. They are now retired, based back in southern Florida, living close to their grandchildren. The two of them love to sail boats and ride Harley Davidsons. There have been difficult times, too. Kleiner suffered miscarriages and survived breast cancer. But at sixty-six, she considers herself lucky. She reached that desert island with the palm tree. I've sat on that chair with my toes in the sand. Though she had thought of writing her story years ago, Kleiner put it off. I didn't want to live in the past, she says. I wanted Michael to enjoy his childhood. I wanted to be the mom who made cupcakes and had pool parties and birthday parties, and watched his baseball game. Only in the past few years has she really shared what happened. In October 2023, her book, A Light in the Dark, was published. Michael was 37 when he learned it all. He'd read an interview and called me, she says. I'd never hidden it. When he was little, he'd asked about the scars on my face— and I'd said that a bad man had hit me one night. I answered questions when he had them, but I didn't want his childhood haunted by Bundy. When he phoned, his voice was shaking, and he was shocked. He said, Mom, you seem so normal, and that's exactly what I wanted. I told him, I still am. That was... Ted
0: Bundy bludgeoned and almost killed me. I resolved he would not ruin my life. Written by Anna Moore. Read by Lydia Parker. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere.
2: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, when the pure comedy sex lives of the potato men bombed The filmmakers blame the critics and the Tories blame the UK Film Council. Twenty years on, Fergal Kinney reassesses the legacy of a cinematic pariah whose champions include Stuart Lee and Mike Lee. Read
3: by Dan Starkey. Actor Dominic Coleman was about to board a flight back from Australia when he received a text from Mark Gatiss about a film they had starred in together. It was a quote from the Sunday Times. Is this the worst British film ever made? By the time Coleman was changing planes in Hong Kong, disgust at the film had spread to the front pages of the British newspapers on sale at the airport. It was, he remembers, like the end of the world. It felt like people were pointing at me on the plane. That's the guy. It's him. It was a really difficult time and it really freaked me out. February 2004 was not a slow news month in Britain, but a British sex comedy starring Johnny Vegas and Mackenzie Crook, and the national lottery money that had financed it, ignited a culture war that may have changed UK film forever. It started with a script. Andy Humphreys had spent his twenties and thirties in TV production at Granada under Tony Wilson, liaising with Manchester bands and comedy talent. I saw a van in Finsbury Park that said Dave's Potatoes on it, says Humphreys, who began to work on a screenplay pitched as Dumb and Dumber meets Confessions of a Window Cleaner. It was, he says, intended as an apolitical take on the working class and drawing on his time working at a petrol station. There was a real buzz around it, remembers Coleman. There had been a bidding war on the distribution deal and the cast was brilliant. Vegas, Crook, Lucy Davis, Julia Davis and Gatiss were all fresh from game-changing television success and signed up to the picture. When Coleman received the script, he remembered thinking it was particularly gross out. But there was a lot of quirky little moments in it, he says, and I remember thinking there could be enough balance. In 2000, the new Labour government set up the UK Film Council, a quango with more than 75 staff responsible for streamlining and sustaining the allocation of National Lottery funding to British film. We were quite outspoken about what we were doing, because we wanted to change the British film industry, says Ian Thompson, formerly the UKFC's chief publicist. What we ended up doing with Sex Lives was a very specific exercise. The UKFC wanted to disrupt the idea that British film was making quite worthy films for itself, exemplified by recent successes such as Touching the Void or Bloody Sunday? What about young lads who want to go out on a Friday night together, says Thompson of a demographic the UKFC viewed as underserved. Are they going to go and watch Gosford Park? The Potato Men proposal was hotly contested within the council. The debate was, dare I say, robust, remembers Thompson, but resulted in the UKFC financing around £1 million of a £3 million budget for what Thompson terms was always understood as a bawdy sex comedy. It was during the first script read-through that Coleman sensed something was off. Andy Humphreys kind of froze, says the actor. He looked so nervous. Suddenly this thing was happening and the pressure was on. Though still set in Birmingham, due to budget constraints, shooting would mostly be confined to Hayes and Chigwell. If you want to know what London's orbital edgelands looked like on an overcast weekday in the Blair years, watch this film. It wasn't the happiest of shoots, says Coleman. It was tough. Because it was smutty and all a bit grim, you found yourself in quite grim locations. One day, shooting took place in a tower block. We had a green room that had been taken back by the council because it had been used as a crack den, he remembers. It was all a bit like that. Humphreys rejects this. It was the greatest time ever, he says. Just lovely people, and it was a brilliant experience. The films audiences love to hate can become hilarious and compulsive, but Sex Lives is not one of those films. With its relentlessly tawdry sex jokes and grubby downcast visuals, the effect is largely queasy and depressive. Across 82 minutes, Crook becomes locked in a barely consensual tryst with his mother-in-law. There's a misogynistic running joke about fish paste. Gatiss's character gives up stalking his ex when he finds romance with Julia Davis, culminating in a sequence of the latter picking up dog excrement with her bare hands. Adrian Childs, who Humphreys knew from the BBC, makes a cameo performance as a towel-clad swinger. After a press screening, the film went on general release on the 20th of February as the reviews arrived. In The Times, James Christopher called it a sump of untreated dung. To other titles, it was simply the worst film ever made. Catherine Shord in The Telegraph wrote that describing it is like finding the right words at a nasty accident, while the Evening Standard critic, Antonia Quirk, termed it mirthless, worthless, toothless, useless. The Observer's critic, Philip French, stated his relief that Carol Rice and Tony Richardson had died before being able to witness it. The urgent debate for our native film industry seems to me as follows, wrote Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian. Should we put the gun barrel to our temples, or in our mouths for a cleaner kill? Both Labour MP Claire Short and the Conservative MP Anne Widdecombe condemned the film. Julie Kirkbride, speaking on Culture for the Conservative Party, took up the film as a cause. You can produce any old rubbish with your own money, she told the Daily Mail, but the public don't want to feel their money is being wasted. Thompson remembers touring TV studios in a damage limitation exercise. We fell foul because the film didn't come up to scratch, he says. I thought it was unfair to pick on a film that was essentially well-meaning, argues Humphreys. It felt like bullying to me. He remembers being aware of having inadvertently tapped into something wider. Someone said it was what Blair's Britain had become, he remembers. This yob culture being celebrated. After being doorstepped by journalists, Humphreys broke his silence with an incendiary op-ed in The Guardian attacking a middle-aged, middle-class film critic elite. I think there was a class aspect, says comedian Stuart Lee, who remembers trying to phone Vegas from a nearly empty West End cinema screening. The same reason that Fleabag did disproportionately well would be the same reason that Sex Lives of the Potato Men did badly. They don't really believe people like that exist. Lee argues that the film should be viewed in a lineage of ITV comedies from the 70s, that centred on an unvarnished view of working-class life. Andy shared with me an email that Mike Lee sent him, remembers Coleman, just saying that I can see what you were trying to do and keep your chin up. Though a perplexed New York Times reported on the furore, the film's cast mostly tried to move on, leading Vegas, in an interview that year with Esquire, to chide his colleagues that everyone that read that script wanted to be in it. Humphreys returned to TV making documentaries on comedy legends for the BBC. It was disappointing, he concedes. But I've written and directed a film. Having penned a sequel to the film, he still defends as fantastic, Humphreys recently wrote a madcap spin-off, starring himself as a mad film director, blackmailing a reluctant cast into making Potato Men 2. In the meantime, new media has not yet actualised his prediction of a people's hit. The film has a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 0%, and has fewer than 50,000 views on YouTube. Today, naughty's culture is ripe for reappraisal. The same nasty puerility that Sex Lives was castigated for brought era-defining success to Russell Brand, as well as Beau Selector and Little Britain, which that year made the prestige jump from BBC3 to BBC1. For the UKFC, despite backing hits such as This Is England and In The Loop, the furory proved sticky. When the Conservatives came to power in 2010, within weeks Jeremy Hunt had abolished the council ahead of the austerity era Bonfire of the Quangos. Much of the coverage mentioned Sex Lives of the Potato Men. At a UKFC reunion this month, its former chief executive mourned that the Conservative Party had killed off the most effective organisation that British film ever had. The Sex Lives storm prefigured how the Tories would deal with the creative industries in power preferring to castigate them and stoke culture wars than accept the unique risks and rewards of sectors that contribute enormously to the economy. It's a big and expensive medium and people have to practice, says Thompson. It was a totally original idea, and now formulas are where the safe ground is. Did sex lives of the potato men show a system that, in fact, worked? My background is in experimental theatre, says Coleman. And to me, it's a given that you start a project and there's no guarantee that it will work. But you have to have the inquiry, the experiment. Otherwise, you're just constantly making Charlie's aunt forever. Sex Lives of the Potato Men. They don't make them like that anymore. That was the
0: worst film ever made. How Sex Lives of the Potato Men Broke British Cinema. Written by Fergal Kinney. Read by Dan Starkey. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about a brilliant new Guardian podcast series. It's called Black Box, and it's about artificial intelligence. Well, actually, it's about our relationship with AI, the ways in which it might help us, and the ways in which it's going to be very bad. Each episode follows a different story from deep fakes to facial recognition. We think it's the guide to AI you've been waiting for. New episodes are out every Monday and Thursday, and the first one is out now. Subscribe to Black Box wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review or let us know what you want to hear more of. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Dan Starkey and Lydia Parker and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
3: Where's that dust coming from?
2: Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX 10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class, all in one robot vacuum for only $799.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.